Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome, Rab. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Karen. I've lost not one, but two parents to COVID-19. I'm not sure how anyone could come to terms with that and manage that loss. But here you are, ready to explain a little about what you've been through and how you're coping, your coping mechanisms to get through life without these two very important people. It would be brilliant Mm -hmm. if you were able to go back in time I know that your parents, Suka and Gurdiv, your mum, your dad and your mum, that they came to England in 1965 and settled in the Midlands. I'm wondering, did they meet in the Punjab in northern India or did they meet here? Tell me a little bit about their background. My mum and dad, Sucha Singh Hoti and Gurdiv Kaur Hoti, were married for an arranged marriage between the two families so they hadn't met and (laughs) one of dad's funny stories was that um they they literally hadn't met in India yeah and that the on the wedding day (laughs) my mum is um covered uh, so face is obscured talks about how it was oh phew what a relief when she pulled back her head covering and he said oh yeah oh yeah that's okay she was easy on the eye then (laughs) yeah all arranged between the two sets of parents and they worked really well as a couple my dad came to England first to sort out getting property and a job and then a couple of years later that my mum came to to join him and that year they had my brother he was the first of four children that they went on to have followed by my two sisters and then the youngest and why did their relationship work so well do you think what was the spark the chemistry the common ground I think it's the personalities my dad went on to help all his siblings the siblings on my mum's side to also make that transfer so and also other extended family members as well because that's just the people they were the default was always yes if I can help then that's what we will do and they were both of that mindset and they were just good honest people they sound very much like my parents. I'm the child of immigrants also, but to London from Ireland. And it was a similar scenario where, you know, one came first and then the the others followed with help. And there was always this great community and network. Great, really. Yeah, it is. And uh, it's a bit difficult to describe to somebody who hasn't necessarily experienced that. I mean, casting on my back, it's something that my parents didn't really like to talk about. But I know that racism was rife when they arrived and, and continue to be, let's face it, well, decades later. It's just, it, it's a bit more filtered now is the only difference. But, you know, my dad was highly educated. That wasn't recognised. His law degree qualifications weren't worth anything in this country. And he took on a factory role, which he stayed in until he retired. How did that work, do you think? Again, um, they never like to focus on... No, no uh, complaining. No complaining, you know, this is what I need to do. Uh, you know, I've got responsibilities. I just need to earn money. 
um, pragmatic. Um, yeah, and my mum too, very hardworking and crikey. Now that I'm a mum myself, I think, wow, she went back to work so quickly after each and every child. It must have been so hard. They were ships in the night. My dad used to do night shifts and then do the wraparound childcare for us when we were at school and leaving my mum to go to work during the day. Really hard times. What was your childhood like? Can you remember the traditions that you had, the good times? Well, uh, so day to day, my parents are extremely religious. Uh, we had a temple that very <laughs> I grew to know um, just at the end of our road it was like a 10 minute walk my mum and dad used to go there regularly we always went there every Sunday without fail that was that was the routine sounds very similar to me <laughs> except it was a catholic church at the right. end of the road Sikhism Sikhism yeah so the local Sikh Godora and yeah, there was just no question about it. I don't know if it's similar for yourself, but that is just what you did. It, it, there was just no, like, you never thought to ask, oh, well, actually, could I just go see my friends instead on Sunday? It was just unheard of. Yes, religion was very much at the heart of our upbringing, as well as weekends, school holidays, was always, you know, with family, with friends of the family. I'd quite often spend summer holidays with cousins who were scattered around the Midlands area or they'd come and stay with us and that was just the norm and my aunts my uncles my cousins it was very much um we just all just grew up together there you know there's just so many people I've known since birth and that's through my mum and dad helping them to even have the opportunity to come to this country in the first place and and continue to help them I mean years later I remember it was always my dad. My dad was the go-to point. Oh, there's some paperwork. Oh, it looks really complicated. We'll, you know, take it to my dad because he just, yeah, just helped everyone. Bit of a fixer. Yeah, when it came to practical things and, and with my mum, it was very much just open door. Anyone was welcome anytime and just really kind people. When you say about sort of extended family, we grew up around the corner from a very large family of cousins and it was very much this sort of intertwined kids, cousins playing. It was, you know, looking back, it was quite a free time or freer than it is now. So I look back, it's a bit of a golden time, really. Wasn't yeah. And also my mum and dad, even though they were one of the oldest in their siblings and fellow, and fellow peers as well. It's only now as an adult, I can really see how forward thinking they were. So there they were you know, arranged marriage couple, very strict religious views. Yet they were so encouraging of us as girls to, you know, go to the go to your maximum potential, go go to even going to university was unheard of with some a lot of my cousins, female cousins. And because kind of what's the point? You're just going to get married young and have the babies, so why bother? And it was my parents that encouraged us to aim higher. So, yeah, I um, didn't really, I don't think I appreciated it at the time. Yes, it's only sort of looking back. And were you able to go on to third education yourself? Did you? Three out of the four of us went to uni, uh, qualified. From that, I have a successful career in IT. You know, it could have been a very different path for me, thankfully, due to my parents. They really were encouraging and supportive. 
Fantastic. And were you able as a family to travel back to the Punjab at all? No, we never did. There's some complications with my parents' estate in India, which two years later is not resolved. Um, I think that's going to go on for some time. So when they used to make trips back to India, it was all quite on a practical note, quite full of stress, really, and court dates about this wrangling over, yeah, over some land in India. So uh, it wasn't like a for a fun holiday break. Yeah. Which is I I I regret that. I regret I didn't push it more and go with them. What do you miss most about your dad and your mum? So we used to have daily calls, sometimes more than daily. We were um, super close. They adored my children and my husband. So they continued to stay in the Midlands and I live in Hampshire about uh, two and a half hours away. So it's, uh, yeah, miss really miss our regular daily contact. I miss their advice. I miss all these milestones that's happened over the last two years since they passed that I know they would have been the biggest fan. My daughter started at Oxford University. Congratulations. Thank you. And I just, just even the good things it's hard to properly celebrate without them so hard many more things and then there's the dark things and just family get together it's not the same i don't think it ever will be you know this was meant to be their happy years this was meant to be when they got to relax after working hard all their lives paying taxes and just being good people this this was meant to be when we as their children should have been able to spoil them surround them with love and support and their grandchildren and, and for them not to have any worry they're just just robbed of it now so incredibly unjust were they in good health rab your parents at the time january 21 my dad had been diagnosed with dementia vascular dementia and he was in about year four of that now actually wouldn't really know and uh i recall the doctor saying that they wouldn't have known had I not shared it. Right up until the last day, Dad knew exactly who I was, asking about everybody. He There was absolutely nothing. There was no impact to his memory. His sight started to deteriorate, but then he was uh, blind in one eye before that, has been from a young age. A little bit, I guess, a little less mobile. Mum was main carer, so, you know, for somebody who had asthma, arthritis, she was very fit and, yeah. you know, was able to lift my dad for, in and out for washing, dressing. You know, she did everything in those latter years. Very mobile, but still very sociable. She was, you know, a young 75. And she loved socialising and your dad loved his allotment. Yeah. He did. He did until, you know, the digging became a bit too much hard work. Always loved gardening. We've planted some fuchsias in our garden. It was his favourite. Yeah, their garden used to be like a whole array of fuchsias. Very pretty. Tell me how they fell ill with with COVID-19, how that came into your world. So Christmas um, 2020, like many others, stay in your own homes. Don't go anywhere. Christmas was always a special time. Dad's birthday, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, 
my brothers is Boxing Day, eldest sisters on New Year's Day, you know, the Christmas holidays were always huge. So that was hard. Like, but I, I get it, you know, hard for many families. If I'd known, I would have seen them. But we wanted to protect them. And nobody, of course, had had the vaccine by Christmas 2020. So the plan was mum and dad had dates in the second week, the first week of January for their for their jabs. And the idea was, you know, after that, let's, um, let's get you down here and you can stay. That first weekend in January, mum called because we just spoke all the time. Oh, dad's not well. He's struggling to move. I was like, oh dear, okay. And, and his temperature was was not being controlled by paracetamol. I was like, okay, well, let's keep an eye on it. That was Saturday. On the Sunday, the following day, oh, he's struggling a bit more, a bit worried. On Monday, as per advice from their GP, the family GP we've known for years, they called an ambulance. And that was the last time my mum saw my dad. He was admitted to the local hospital on the 4th of Jan. By this time, mum had started to deteriorate, but she wanted to make sure she stayed at home. We all just assumed he was coming home like any day. Like, of course, he'll be back that week. And then... Did you have any communication with hospital? after he went in or communication was not good really not good it was our only way of finding out like so many other families up and down the country what was happening the phone would just ring out and out on the ward when you managed to get through to anybody a human being it would be we'll get back to you or it would be no change or it would be i'll have to check with the doctor with the nurse that's looking after very little. I mean, here's an example how bad the comms were. So dad was admitted on the 4th, Monday, the 4th of January, that Thursday, 7th. I was talking to his physiotherapist. <laughs> they were doing checks on him, day four of being admitted, about how he could, was he safe to come home? Did he have COVID? Was he diagnosed with COVID then? Not that we were told. Okay. On the call with the physiotherapist, in talking about my dad coming home, and oh, he did manage one step. He then said to me, oh, it's a bit tricky because he does have COVID. That's how I found out. Oh, so as an aside. Despite the fact that I was talking to the ward all the time, ever since he was admitted on Monday. So I was scratching my head then. I was thinking, but how can he be released home then? How is that safe? You've just said the amount of care that he's going to need initially. Who's going to do that? Who's going to come into a home knowing that they're positive? Oh, oh, I don't know. I'll talk to the doctor. So that's how I found out. By this time, mum had just got worse and worse over the course of that week. And uh, her GP was telling her, do all you can not to go in there. Keep away from the hospitals. They're killing people. And then mum got so much worse. But that first Saturday, so three days after dad was diagnosed. Oh, yes, that's right. On the Thursday, that I, it was dropped into conversation that dad was positive. Mum was on her way out of the door to get her vaccine because that's when it was scheduled for both of them. The hospital wouldn't give dad the vaccine. They refused. Mum was due to go to a centre and I had to stop her because I said, you can't go. Dad's positive. I'll always have guilt about that. And then two days later on the Saturday, mum was admitted to hospital because she couldn't breathe. And she was tested positive the following day on the Sunday. So within four days of each other, we now then knew that they were positive and they never came out. Were you able to, to go there? So Monday the 11th in the morning, I get a call. 
So I was the contact on dad's ward and my sister was the contact on my mum's ward. Basically, it's a it's an end of life call. But Thursday and Friday, they were still talking to me, the doctors, the physiotherapists, about getting care organised for my dad. So that's what I did. It was already, they were due to arrive Monday morning. Two carers to come in four times a day with PPE. They knew about him being positive. It was all arranged. So when they called me Monday morning, I thought it was to give me a pickup time, knowing that I had a two and a half hour drive to get there. But it was to tell me he wasn't coming home and that I needed to get there as quick as possible because I didn't know if I'd make it. So only one person allowed. My husband drove me, stayed in the car park. I got to see dad, not before being shouted at by the sister of the ward, accusing me of being a super spreader. You told me to come. Somebody told me to come. I haven't barged my way in. Like, even Mm. before I got into the ward, so I had that, quite frankly, nastiness. And then Dad's doctor just suddenly appeared. And all she wanted to talk about was, you need to sign a DNAR. I'm here to see my dad. I don't even know if he's still with us. Like, I don't want to talk about this. I just want to see my dad. Just physically blocking my way. I got past her, got to my dad's bed. Uh, He recognised me straight away. He was talking. And I'm thinking, what am I doing here? And we hardly got to say anything before the doctor was there again, shouting in his face, you need to sign this, this DNAR. Saying that you had to sign the do not resuscitate. I refused. She's then shouting in my dad's face to get him to do it. I have to ask her to step away from the bed. And I think this is what it's been like for him all week. This is probably what my mum's going through. It just sickened me. It was such a loud ward. My patients were screaming, I want to go home. Let me go home. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I can't imagine being here. I was allowed to stay for two hours. Then um, you, ha- you were able to have conversations with your dad? I said some prayers. But it was very chaotic, very noisy. And the backdrop of the doctor just so insisted about signing a DNIR. So it wasn't, you know, some quiet time together for a couple of hours. And I was extremely stressed I was because I wasn't given any PPE. I had a mask and some gloves. You know, I'm, I was terrified of bringing it back to my children. It was just incredibly stressful. Do you think your dad was aware of his situation, that he was dying? I don't know. He seemed normal, literally. A full conversation. And because I was there, mum was on the ward just the floor below so I asked given I'm here would I be allowed to go see her and mum's ward knew the reason why I was in the hospital but they refused and instead a doctor came out of mum's ward and met me outside all he wanted to talk about signing a DNAR knowing I had just come from my dad's bed and I said can you just can you talk to me about how she is what are you doing like what's happening it would be in everybody's best interest if you just sign this DNA on. So I refused again and left that hospital. What hospital was that? Warsaw Manor in the West Midlands. The day after, Tuesday the 12th of January, my sisters and I just do the usual, regular, you know, try to get hold of somebody on the ward. When I managed to get through at about one o'clock in the afternoon, this is the next day on the 12th, I get asked, why are you bothering to call? He's dead. Oh my That's how was broken to me. Next of kin has been informed. Well, I'm the next of kin, and I have not been informed. 
so then there was this silly argument about we left you a voicemail no we did speak to somebody they couldn't make their minds up it was a sorry mess <sighs> couldn't give me time of death we still don't know because we've come to find out that there's very little in the way of checks so i still don't I, I won't know what time he was most likely alone so i start to arrange dad's funeral whilst mum's still in hospital and then it was a week later so on the 19th I just get such a bad feeling I, I literally um, just can't sleep and it had been building up over the last few days that I just sensed mum was in so much danger so the funeral director was right opposite Warsaw Manor Hospital so I was begging with the hospital just to let me in, let me see mum. I'm up there on a five-hour road trip organising dad's funeral. Can I please just, just see her? They allow one again for a limited time. The first thing mum does is, you know, does hand signals to like, no, don't come here, get out. So very much, again, still with it, knows the danger. And then the next thing, she points to a jug of water. Mum, like me, you know, drinks pints and pints of water during the day. And it broke my heart that it was put out of her reach. I just, I now know that basic care wasn't taken with both of them. I know that. I feared it, and now I know it. And I just don't, I'll never understand why my parents, who are always good, honest people, helpful, why they didn't get to have that for them in their hour of need. I'd only been at my mum's bedside for five minutes before two doctors appeared bustling me into a small room, five of them, doctors, a sister, so ward doctors, ICU and a sister. <sighs> Back to DNAR conversations and also retracting on a promise that they'd made my sister two days previously, should it be needed, my mum would be admitted to ICU. Well, first of all, they tried to deny that they ever said that. And then they just tried to persuade me that this is a phrase I'll never forget, a viable candidate. What does that mean? It sounds very much like a laboratory experiment. Clinical. I said, but explain to me why. Why would she not? Are you full? No, we're running at 50%. So if it happened now, why would you get all the care that this hospital could get? Best possible chance. Why not? And that's where, as I was leaving, probably knowing that I was seeing my mum for the last time, the piece of A4 paper was thrown in my face. That's the reason why your mum's not going to be admitted to ICU. If you have an issue with that, take it up with the government. And on this illegible piece of paper, it, it was completely unreasonable. So after driving home that evening, my husband and I stayed up for several hours into the night because there was a little footer reference. And after lots of Googling, established that what I'd been thrown in my face was an appendix to an overall document, which looked as if it had been issued by the then government to all NHS settings. And this appendix was a decision matrix. So if you are over 75 with one ailment out of a list, then most likely not to get to ICU. And so it would be ward care only. So they decided to take that as their whole decision-making process without any actual thought to individual cases. My mum was not a frail 75-year-old. She was fit, mobile, made carer for my dad, who just so happened to be 75 with asthma. 
And then Saturday, the 22nd of January, we get the call. She's gone. Still no time because don't know when the last time she was checked on. So again, no time on her own. So, yeah, they went within 10 days of each other. Quite a hard anniversary coming up. I can literally, for most of January, I'm just back there two years ago because it was just emotional roller coaster every single day. Your loss and... is catastrophic, but the manner in which you lost them, just brutal cruelty on top of such pain. Yeah, it's the guilt, you know, just wrapped with guilt. You know, whilst I, I'm the youngest, I, they always looked to me, you know, if they had any questions, whether it was practical, what to do with the house or whatever it was about their affairs, they turned to me and my husband. I have to live with the fact that I feel I let them down. I have to live with that. Money people who have lost a loved one to COVID-19 have struggled to close the circle of grief, have struggled to believe really or feel that the loss is real and because many death rituals were denied, you know, a final goodbye, seeing seeing a loved one's body, a funeral, a memorial, there's this feeling that that loss is unreal, surreal, very dreamlike and that, you know, a loved one could appear, you know, at any moment. That's, that's why it's so so difficult and obviously in the Sikh uh, religion you said that the every ritual denied to you I wondered whether you could just elaborate a little on the things that should have happened and that you wanted to do for your parents and that you were not able to do what would be traditional is that after somebody passes is that so in this case a parent the immediate family would congregate in the family home and it would be an open door that very day until the day of the funeral and for some time afterwards the point being that everybody would come together and support each other and that's what always happened growing up that's what I always saw in any of our family losses it's what you did and that wasn't allowed in the rules January 21 so we all just had to sit in our own homes yeah the loneliness is I mean that alone but the fact that there was such religious people they would have wanted they, they deserved that and it's just another unfair massively unfair thing the washing the cleansing of of the body and dressing them something that close family would have done so the females would have done by mum and males by dad not allowed and instead it had to be Thankfully, the funeral director was amazing. He knew my parents in the community and um, he oversaw that, made sure that it was, you know, well, did the best they can, but it, it wasn't us doing it like we should have done. No open casket. Again, just that is tradition. That's what you do. People approach and pay their respects, place flower petals, um, none of that. The last time I saw them was at the funeral director's because he did, he arranged it so I could go to a room and see them. I did that on my own. The 5Ks, which very symbolic to Sikhism. Can you they, explain what they are? Yes, of course. It's, um, so it's a combination of clothing, accessories. So there's the kanga, which is the bracelet, the comb. There's a small dagger, necklace bangle, a mini comb, a little sword. Sorry, I... Underwear as well? Or... Yeah, 
Thank you. Yes, the shorts called Kutcher. They were always, always would have been on my mum. Are these items that she would have had since she was a child or for a very long time? No, I think she got them here in England. Yeah. We were quite brutally told that everything would be burnt, incinerated. I can only assume that that's where her five Ks went. So we had to go out and buy new ones, which at all is not what's supposed to happen. It just felt like at every corner, we just denied, denied. Those items were important to your mother. Very, very, yeah. Are you comforted by the fact that you were able to see them? Definitely. That has helped. I mean, with my dad, I was invited. With my mum, I just had to see her selfishly. I'm glad I did, because it would turn out to be the last time. Because we never did get, oh, if you jump in the car now, you might make it. By that Friday, the 22nd in the morning, it was, oh, at some point last night. Everybody has loss, sadly. You know, it's a circle of life, you know. But the way you lose somebody, the circumstances, how you're treated, actually, those things really matter and affect the grieving process, as I've discovered. Because I, I know that some people would say, well, is it comparable to sudden loss? You know, your loved one goes out. And they have a car accident or you know something unexpected happens completely out of the blue. And, it, and I get why they say that and, and think that way. You know, it's another sudden loss. We're in a hospital. They should have been in the best place. They should have been cared for. They should have had access to all the treatments that a patient should expect in a hospital. So knowing that they weren't given the best chance, knowing that they were dehydrated, starved they couldn't feed themselves and alone my mum at one point asked us to stop calling the ward please stop calling they come and shout at me when you're asking about me my word that's terrible they didn't deserve that nobody did how have you managed to cope what has helped you to get through in these last two years you know what's been a catastrophic loss double loss what has helped I took a year out for 2021. I wasn't really functioning. I I took a uh, career break. I did access remote grief counselling that summer for six weeks. I think people find it hard to listen to. I think it is horrific. So I don't really... At the beginning, I did try to talk about it with friends and family, but I think it was too much for them to hear. And... Sort of coming out of 21 into last year, I think. Um, I'm not sure I have found the coping mechanisms, actually. I you must have because you're here now helping other COVID bereaved people by speaking. You found that strength. I think certainly connecting with others who have been through similar fellow COVID bereaved people get it. And it's it's a whole, you don't have to explain and because sadly they just know it all too well. Joining the justice group, COVID-19 Reform is for Justice, amazing, supportive group. Highly recommend anyone who's not a member to do that. And being active in the inquiry, into the public inquiry, much as it's extremely painful, um, that's all I've got left now. That's all I can do is just make sure this country makes better decisions in the event of another pandemic. I wouldn't want anyone 
anyone to have gone through this. So whatever I could do to prevent it, I will. You feel quite strongly that there wasn't support for the BAME group, the Black, Asian and Minority communities in in the pandemic what was missing so what used to happen is that the government used to come on to their daily broadcasts to the nation and i can't exactly remember when i'm fairly sure it was in 2020 autumn of 2020 perhaps even the term bane was said I, i i wasn't familiar with it before and then that became a term that just came into everyday language and that i remember government ministers saying in those daily briefings oh yeah it would appear if you're BAME and you test positive you're you're going to be more vulnerable so your chances are reduced but with no what never ever came weeks months never actually and then the briefing stopped was what advice would you give what are you supposed to do with that information as a BAME person and it was just sort of a statement that was made so I do feel like People in that grouping were let down. And there still isn't any advice, support, guidance, even now, January 23. I think there has been research which showed that societal inequalities that existed before the pandemic were exacerbated by the pandemic. So, you know, depending on your living arrangements, your access to healthcare, the type of job you did... All of those things were impacting more greatly the BAME community. How do you feel about that? I mean, you know, you mentioned that your dad was a qualified lawyer in his native country, but, you know, there were no opportunities for him back then to practice, you know, what he was qualified to do. Extremely angry. I feel like in some respects, those, the inequalities he faced in the 60s ended up not actually being that much different in 21 which is shameful. Do you have any clue where they could have caught the virus? Or was it a mystery like it is for so many? No idea. Dad didn't go out at all, at all. Mom did the essentials, shopping, mask, gloved, what everybody else was doing for those that needed to be in enclosed spaces to get essentials. Have you been able to celebrate their lives? Have you been able to do something symbolic or do you plan to do that in the future? I can't. I'm not in that position yet. Yeah. And right now, I, I don't know when I would be. When I think of them, and I know that's the positive slant, is that think of the good times, the memories, the happy memories. For me, I'm haunted. I see in my memories the terrified look in their eyes. And so, uh, yeah, I hope that changes. But right now, it's not. How would you sum up? I mean, they was obviously sound like two very special people who did not deserve such a tragic end. I mean, their legacy sounds huge. Are you able to describe what that is for you and your family? Two very honourable people, full of integrity, and brought up their children. Very hard times. You know, worked hard whilst helping others. Fantastic grandparents. I just loved to missed by so many. Thank you, Rab. Well done. I know that's just so incredibly difficult to revisit, but in doing that, you are extending so much help to so many people. I wish you the very best. Thank you very much, Karen. I hope it does help others. 
Thanks so much for listening. Please do subscribe and review the podcast if you get a minute. And if you'd like to make a donation, you can do so via the show notes. The price of a coffee would be fantastic. And also please do follow Stolen Goodbyes on Twitter at RiceKMC and under Stolen Goodbyes on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to participate, you can email at stolengoodbyes at gmail.com or visit my website, www.karen-rice.com. Good luck.